There are stories that a creature lives in the forest of eastern Kentucky, not far from Olive Hill. On the edge of the Daniel Boone National Forest, about 20 miles from town, there's a lake called Cave Run. It's one of the biggest lakes in Kentucky. It's so deep that the topography of the lake bottom has never been fully explored. Cave Run is really a lake system. There's a large central pool. From that central pool, branches, like tentacles, extend for miles in all directions, between the valleys and the Appalachian foothills. These parts of the lake system wind like rivers for as little as half a mile and as long as five miles. At its widest point, the houses on the other side of the lake are barely visible. There are rumors that a creature lives in the lake. Boaters on the lake at night have reported seeing the outlines of strange shapes in the water that disappear when they turn their spotlights on for a closer look. Fishermen on the shore of the lake have reported sudden loud disturbances in the water, splashes and sloshing, and a peculiar body surfacing in the distance, only to disappear again. When I was in high school, we went to Cave Run Lake at night, walking the shoreline, drinking alcohol we'd stolen from our parents, and casting flashlights out over the water. I was one of those kids. It's no surprise that we didn't find the creature in the lake, because, legend has it, you have to be absolutely silent while you're looking for it. And kids aren't good at silence. Why did you have to be silent in order to find it? Because you had to be able to hear it singing. Over the years, one thing all of the reports had in common is that just before these sightings, the witnesses heard singing. Beautiful, soft, almost imperceptible voices coming from somewhere just out of their range of vision. There are countless legends about lake monsters from all over the world. The most famous may be the Loch Ness Monster in Scotland. But the creature in Cave Run Lake is no ordinary lake monster. It's a mermaid. This is Olive Hill. I woke up the morning after Ricky Allen's arrest with dozens of texts and missed calls. It seems like every person I'd spoken with since I arrived in Olive Hill was eager to be the one to give me the news that they'd found Ricky. Sheriff Wood had sent three texts. They found your leak, 30 minutes later. Hell of a day to sleep in. And an hour after the second text, no big deal, it's just one of the prime suspects from 2001. Thanks, Sheriff. I drove to Olive Hill right away, but it turned out that all that driving was for nothing. On the advice of his attorney and union rep, Ricky declined to speak with me. He had been suspended without pay, pending investigation, from the Olive Hill Police Department. He's been charged with, well, it's a lot. I remember Ricky from when I grew up here. He was four years older than me, and he was trouble. He'd had a few minor encounters with the law, and he was well known as your best bet to score cigarettes and alcohol if you were underage. He worked third shift at a gas station by Interstate 64, and if you found yourself alone in the store while he was behind the counter, he'd sell you whatever you wanted for a healthy markup. If you met him behind the gas station, you could buy something a little stronger. The people I've spoken with say Ricky turned his life around soon after the girls vanished. He was eventually cleared by the Olive Hill police of all suspicion in Lisa's disappearance. But being cleared by the police is one thing. 
being cleared by the town is another story. His turnaround was remarkable, though. He stayed out of trouble, and eventually he wanted to join the police department himself. His record made him ineligible to be an actual officer, but he was able to come on as a civilian clerk. And he'd been there for almost a decade, until a couple of nights ago when he threw it all away because he wanted me to have an old journal. I don't know why he wanted me to have it. And, at least for now, he's not talking about it. I know, honey. It's nothing personal, and I'm not upset with you. But I won't talk about it. I have to think about the position that Ricky's in. That's Carla Hayes again, Ricky's mother. We spoke to her in episode two about her time as a member of Mercy and Light. I understand. If something comes up, would you still be willing to discuss other parts of the story that don't involve Ricky? Um, I guess that'll just have to depend on what it is. I can't blame her. Of course I can't. But I've hit a dead end. I had nothing to show for my drive back to Olive Hill, and within the hour, I was driving back to Lexington. Anthony was coming to Lexington that night to look over my copies of Violet's journal. I needed to prepare for that meeting. Wow, that's definitely her handwriting. Yeah, I still have uh, a few of her letters and notes. I've read them and reread them again and again, especially after the first couple years. You know, it's weird seeing her handwriting somewhere else, something that I haven't looked over a thousand times. I met with Anthony at a restaurant and bar a couple of blocks from my hotel. I have to admit that watching Anthony read the photocopied pages was emotional for me. In that moment, Anthony was that kid again, trying to come to terms with a mystery. He read the entire stack of papers. It took about 90 minutes and three drinks for him to read the whole thing. While he read, I answered emails on my phone to pass the time. When he finished, he went to a store across the street and bought a pack of cigarettes and a lighter. He said he hadn't smoked in years. I asked him to leave the pages inside while he stepped outside to smoke. They were my only copies, and I wouldn't get a second chance at them. You know, it's funny. I used to buy cigarettes from Ricky Allen. They were like $2 a pack back then, but he charged double and kept the difference. And now here I am again, smoking, reading a journal that he stole in order to give to you. Has he reached out to you? No, I've tried, but he's not talking right now. I can't blame him. Yeah, I get it. So, what did you think? There's a lot of you in there. Yeah, yeah, there is. For the moment, anyway, that was all I was going to get about that. Anthony was still processing everything he'd read. You could see it in his demeanor and his tone. There was a lot going on. He was in a nostalgic headspace. So you didn't know that she wrote stories... How do you mean? Well, about 20 pages in there. The story about the fairies. Right. Sorry. It's okay. Uh, No, I didn't know that at all. I mean, it's obviously about the game that they used to play. Her and Violet. I mean, shit, sorry. She and Lisa. They used to play the fairy game in the forest. Disclaimer, Anthony's had a few drinks at this point, and I was considering whether I should turn off the recorder. But he insisted he was fine, and he wanted to continue. So, why do you keep looking into this? I mean, it's been 15 years. 
Do you think that there's anything new to figure out? I mean, it took like 90 years to figure out what happened to that couple that ran away. There were theories about them being all over the country and the world. And it turns out they wrecked before they even left town. Yeah, no one ever really gets away, do they? Everyone I know that moved away has that little calling that urges them to come back home. Do you feel that pull to come back? No, I don't. But here you are. I'm sorry about your mom, but the funeral's over. The estate's settled. There's nothing new about the girls. And here you are, still back at home. Two things. First, there is absolutely new information to be found. You just read it. And second, this isn't just the past anymore. It's jumped into the present. Ricky Allen obviously thinks there's something in there worth looking into, and he's willing to lose his job and face charges over it. Maybe. Look, I don't mean to be difficult, it's just... It's strange seeing her handwriting again. That was my cue to cut off the recorder. Anthony and I talked for a while longer while he sobered up for his drive back to Cincinnati. I walked back to my hotel, and somewhere along the way I'd missed a call. There was a voicemail on my phone. Hey, Esther. It's Carla. Ricky. Ricky wants to talk to you. He won't talk to his lawyer, to me, to anyone until he's talked to you. I told him I don't think it's a good idea. No offense or anything. I just don't want him to get himself into any more trouble. But he's a grown man, and he can make his own decisions. Will you please call me back? I called Carla back right away, and we arranged a time to meet the following morning in Olive Hill. Ricky is out on bond and confined under house arrest. It made it easy to decide the location. Carla sounded... resigned. I had trouble sleeping that night. I always get anxious before a big interview. Relative to some of my other subjects, this was definitely not a big one by most people's standards. I've spoken with senators, CEOs, and big-time criminals, but they'd all been prepped by advisors, lawyers, and publicists. I assume that Ricky has been prepped too, and he'll stick to a script and talking points from his lawyer and police union rep. Usually, someone reaching out to me while they're under investigation means that they hope to accomplish something with the interview, something that has nothing to do with me. But I was having trouble figuring out Ricky's angle. When I prep for an interview, I make meticulous notes and lists of primary questions for my subject. Then I make branching graphs. I imagine every answer that I could be given, and I create a new branch with specific follow-ups. Then follow-ups to all of the possible answers to the first set of follow-ups. I try to branch out three or four questions deep in every direction. Here's a dirty little secret I'll tell you, though. I never use it. When I sit down across the table or when I approach my subject on the street or in a hallway, my mind goes blank. I forget it all. There's nothing more unprofessional than reading questions from notes or, even worse, fumbling through your sloppy branching graph. So despite all of this preparation that for some reason I still do every time, I always go blank. And then I panic. All of the insecurities I feel about not being a real journalist, not having studied this, untrained, amateur, 
all of it swells up in me. The senator or congressman or CEO or murderer will look at me. They know who I am. They don't walk into a room without knowing exactly who they're sitting across from. They know that only a few years ago I made silly YouTube videos with my acting troupe, getting by on ramen noodles. They expect me to be intimidated or awestruck. They think it's going to be a walk in the park. They're not wrong, and I am scared. And then, I remember Philadelphia. My producer and I just finished shooting a parody music video for a local acting troupe, a payment upfront gig, which was rare for us. We were walking to the train station to go back to New York. We were in the wrong place at the wrong time. The glass breaking is the first thing I remember, not the gunshots. I'm not sure how many shots happened in that first burst of gunfire. We scattered behind parked cars, and after a couple of moments of terror, some internal switch I never knew I had flipped inside of me. I grabbed the camera, and from behind a parked car, we went live on our stream site before any news station in the city had gotten the call. It was four minutes before the first police officers arrived and began exchanging gunfire with the man in the window. It was another six minutes before police entered the building from the back door and made their way to the top floor where they knocked down the door. And you can imagine how that ended. It was 19 minutes before the first news van arrived. It was all over by then. For those few minutes, every national news station was broadcasting my live feed. And after I was released from police questioning, I turned on my phone and I had job offers from every one of them. So, yes, I'm an amateur, and I may not be trained to respond to your talking points, but I'd like to see you hold it together, staring down an assault rifle from five floors below. And then I feel fine. I'm more comfortable sitting across from that subject than I am sitting across from my own family. That entire process, forgetting my prep, the fear, the anxiety, the insecurity, the memories, the rebound, the defiance, it all happens in an instant, before we shake hands. But we're not there yet. I'm still in the anxiety phase, the night before, in my hotel room in Lexington. There's an added uncertainty. The Ricky I was about to meet was, by all accounts, not the guy I remembered. Would that throw me off? My thoughts were racing. It was after midnight. I'm not in my 20s anymore. I can't pull an all-nighter and still be on my A-game the next day. At 3.30 a.m., I decided that I was more likely to sleep through my alarm than to wake up in a couple of hours. So I got out of bed and I took a shower. At 4 a.m., I made my way to the hotel parking garage and I drove through the empty city streets. After gassing up, grabbing a breakfast of gas station snacks and a massive coffee. I made my way to the freeway and pointed my car east toward Olive Hill. 20 minutes later, the last of the city lights were fading behind me and stretching out in front of me, the vast, empty darkness of the Appalachian foothills. I got to Olive Hill just before the first light came up over the mountains. 
Olive Hill is a couple of miles off the interstate, but there's a small cluster of businesses by the highway. One of them was the diner where Lisa Banks had worked. On a long, dark night, half my lifetime ago, she wandered off into the forest from here, and she never came home. I decided to leave my gas station breakfast in the car and go inside for some real food. The waitress said she remembered me. She'd gone to school with my mom. She offered her condolences. I asked her how long she'd worked here. She got straight to the point. She didn't know Lisa, but she'd gone to school with her mom, Angela Banks. About half of the booths were full, people eating breakfast before going to work. I sat in a booth in the corner. A big glass window looked out into the forest. It was darker than I remembered. It felt just as deep and endless as it did when I was a kid. As the sun continued to rise, I thought of a girl who would have seen the light coming over the mountains as a sign that her shift was almost over, that it was almost time to go home. Carla was waiting on the porch, next to a table with an ashtray so full that it was frankly impressive. He's waiting for you inside. Make yourself at home. Thank you. Are you okay? I'll be fine. He's inside. I took that as my cue to move on. Oh, and Esther, you know how memories can change as time goes by? We don't always remember things exactly the way they happened, right? I suppose so. Just keep that in mind, hun. Carla turned away and lit another cigarette. I opened the screen door and walked inside. The inside of the house was a haze of smoke. It burned my eyes, and I tried not to tear up. To the right, just inside the front door, was a living room, and Ricky was sitting on a couch, leaning over an ashtray on the coffee table. He was nervous. The house arrest anklet was poking out from the bottom of his pant leg. When he saw me, he stood up and introduced himself. My usual routine, the dread, the anxiety, the insecurity, the memories, the rebound, the defiance. None of it happened. Okay, we're recording. Hey, thanks for coming out. I know it's short notice. It's no trouble. No lawyers? No, no lawyers. Okay, well, I guess I should start by asking why you brought me Violet's journal. Do you mind if we get into that in a minute? Sure. What did you have in mind before we get there? Well, I guess I know what I want to tell you. And I've been going over it in my head. And I've got it. The important parts. But I didn't really think about how to get started. No, that's actually pretty normal. I've always found that when I don't know where to start, I pick it up from the beginning. You gave me Violet's journal. Is this about her? Not really. I mean, I guess kind of, but not exactly. Okay, well, let's try a different approach. Can you tell me about Lisa? You two had been together for a while. What was she like? Lisa. God damn, she never had a chance in this town. Anywhere else, maybe, but just not here. Do you mean the rumors? Yeah, anywhere else someone accuses you of being a witch, and they're the crazy one. But not here. And not when we were kids. And her mom. Her mom was a piece of work. And you know, she never got over thinking that Lisa was an imposter pretending to be her daughter. That's not how I remember it. I thought she got help. 
I remember her being questioned on TV once, and they brought that up. She said it was the biggest regret of her life that her mental illness manifested that way. You know, I'm sure she said all of that. People saw this tough, withdrawn, unapproachable girl. But just under the surface, she felt things more deeply than anyone I'd ever met. We both worked night shift. I was at the gas station by the interstate, and she was at the diner. She used to walk over on her breaks and bring me something to eat. We sat outside while the store was empty, and we'd watch the lights on the highway. She wasn't really all that tough. She was actually kind of a sap. And I know that's not how you remember her. And, and I get it. I get why people remember her the way they do. I didn't want to talk to you at first. I figured it was just going to be another story about the spooky girl who met her tragic end. But this is the most important thing I have to say. Anything else? Anything about the case? That's all secondary. I'm just tired of her being remembered as something that she wasn't. It makes it easier to write off her death when she's just the kid who walked into the forest. When it was just the two of us, she wasn't the girl you remembered. She was playful, silly, she laughed a lot, and she was full of life. She wasn't a lost cause. She cared about things, and she cared about me. And she didn't want to die. She never had a chance here. Neither of us did. I just need people out there to know that she wasn't a lost cause. When this story gets dug up, Violet always gets the attention. And I understand why. There's a lot more mystery about her. Is she still out there and all that? So I get why. But it was always like Violet was the girl who had stuff going for her. And so much potential. And Lisa was just a tragic little footnote on Violet's story. I'm not trying to say that what happened to her wasn't tragic too. But I think you know what I'm getting at. I do. You're probably wondering what any of this has to do with Violet's journal. It's crossed my mind. This is where you're probably going to think that I'm a little crazy. Try me. Okay. So one night we were sitting behind the gas station on her break. And, and she used to tell me these stories about fairies in the woods. But, but they weren't like regular fairies. She, she told it like a ghost story when we were behind that gas station. And I thought she was just bullshitting me. So, you read Violet's journal before you took it back? Of course. So this is all sounding familiar, right? It is. So when the paper published Lisa's therapy notes, and someone leaked all of those stories that she wrote about fairies, and everyone at Mercy and Light freaked out saying that they were really demons. But Violet also wrote about them too. She wrote a whole story about them. So do you see where I'm going? It was just a game they played. It wasn't witchcraft, and it, it wasn't demons. They were just kids being kids. So, why did you wait to tell me now? I'm sure you've known about this journal for a long time. No one wanted to hear anything new. Every journalist coming through town for the last decade is just retelling the ghost story for ratings. I heard you talk to Anthony, so I called him. He said you were really trying to figure something out. So I just wanted to do my part. That's the takeaway, though. 
She wasn't a witch, and she didn't bring it on herself. She was just a kid with an imagination, just like Violet, and it's important for me to set the record straight on that. This conversation will go a long way toward that, I think. Oh, and I found something else in the evidence shed, too. Do you remember the rumors that Lisa was kidnapped about a week before she died? I remember that there was a 911 call, and that the police later thought that was her. They couldn't positively identify her voice, though. Do you know something about that? I know that I didn't see her for three days the weekend before she went missing, and she wouldn't talk to me about where she went. You also remember how much of a hold that church had on this town back then. I remember. Well, members of that church worked in the police department, and they leaked evidence about Lisa to make her look like she was evil. But they also had evidence that made them look bad. How do you mean? There were also tapes in that evidence shed. Three of them. I'd never known what happened during those three days the weekend before she died, but now I do. And it's important for you to know, too. Every one of the police knew about it, and none of them done a thing about it. Even Sheriff Wood. What's on that tape? Why didn't you leak that to me, too? And what makes you think I didn't? Because I don't have any tapes. I needed to talk to you first. To put it all in proper context. There's someone on the tape you'll recognize besides Lisa. Who? You'll see. Someone that I trust brought it to your new hotel in Lexington. They left a couple of hours ago. It's probably already there. We ended the interview there. When I walked out, Carla was gone from the porch, so I walked straight to my car. I was a little rattled by my interview with Ricky. He'd thrown me for a loop. Nothing like that had ever happened to me before. I was intrigued to learn about these tapes. He was also right about the point he'd spent most of the interview trying to make. I'm also guilty of thinking of Lisa as the tragic girl, the withdrawn girl that didn't care about anything. It's easy to forget that she was a person and that there are people that she was taken away from. On my drive back to Lexington, I passed the exit for Cave Run Lake. Over the years, Violet and Lisa come to mind from time to time. The ghost story. The two girls on opposite sides of town inexplicably stop what they're doing and walk into the forest. I sometimes wonder what would have happened if they'd not gone missing. I picture those two girls, two years older than me back then, but half my age now. In my imagination, I age them forward to their mid-thirties. You know how every sci-fi TV show has an episode about alternate dimensions, where something happened differently and the future was changed? Well, if alternate dimensions are real, there's one where the night of July 20th, 2001, was thoroughly uneventful. A field party with a bonfire winds down and everyone goes home. Lisa finishes her shift and crawls into bed with her boyfriend when the sun comes up. Violet wakes up in her bed and life just keeps moving. The way I picture it, somewhere there would be kids growing up in a mountain village. Their mothers would tell them stories about fairies in the forest. Their mothers who woke up uneventfully one summer morning in 2001. They'd tell their kids that if they go to a lake and if they're very quiet, they'd be able to hear them singing out in the water. But that's not the world where we live. They didn't wake up uneventfully one summer half my lifetime ago. 
When I imagined the girls aged forward and all of the maybes and possibilities of the lives they didn't get, it's like watching a ghost story in negative. Like standing on a lakeshore in the dead of night, being as quiet as you can, listening for voices across the water, voices that aren't coming. This is Olive Hill. Olive Hill is created by Ian Epperson, Brooke Jeanette, Bridget Howard, and Grant Schumer. If you like what you hear and you want to help us get the word out, then stop what you're doing and give us a five-star rating and review us on iTunes or wherever you're hearing this. It helps others find the show and you can message us and let us know you did and we'll shower you in praise and gratitude. Seriously, we'll do it. Olive Hill is written and directed by Ian Epperson. The voice of Esther Snow is Brooke Jeanette. Carla Hayes is Bridget Howard. The voice of Anthony Bledsoe is Brian Burkhart. Sheriff Robert Isaac Wood is Mark Dryden. The voice of Ricky Allen is Eric King. Sound production by Liz Walker. Music by Drew Raleigh. Additional information is listed in the show notes. Olive Hill is a fictional story, but it's a real town. Thanks for listening. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.